0: Hello, gentle listener. <laughs> oh, hi, good. I'm this gentle is, and is, I'm listening. So this is you for are me, right? yes yes that's that's what the, hi hi Ethan my my gentle gentle listener. Mm, um, like
1: when you say gentle multiple times.
0: Yikes! This is a family show, uh, and this the name of this show is Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. And uh, what we, do we do on this? We're talking show? about we're talking about books um not about scotch i don't think i said that last episode but like you get it
1: but if 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 the show is about talking about books why is scotch right there in the title and books not at all
0: because we drink scotch ethan we drink it we're talking about about the books yes so you want to drink some scotch with me right now yeah
1: what what scotch should we drink michael
0: let, you know what? I think we should drink this Shield Egg Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, Side, age 12 years. Ooh, I'm just reading that... the words in the order that I see them on the bottle.
1: Yeah, I, I do
0: have that exact bottle
1: here. Um, oh, good, good. It has a, a neat little jobby about the lock,
0: the lock of the herring. You mm-hmm, don't
1: have to read mm-hmm. that,
0: but it's, it's cool. It's cool. A little a little history there, so that's um that's fun. But uh, what, do you, what do you say we, uh, we share a dram of that?
1: Let's do that. But maybe, I mean,
0: there have to be rules, though, right? There do. There do. And who better to, have to, to be lay rules. down the rules for us but uh, your wife, Ethan.
1: Now, on this podcast, we have a total of three English degrees, and yet one of us did just say the phrase, there do have to be rules. There do have to be rules. <laughs> um... But I'm going to let that go because I'm a gracious guest. Did I just say a gracious <laughs> guest? This, this, this one's going to be wild, folks. Um, oh, boy. Anyway, Karen, can you read the rules so we can drink more?
2: <laughs> Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so, because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses.
1: And what happens if someone breaks the rules?
2: If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly.
1: Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thanks. Thanks, bud. (laughs) She doesn't like it when I say thanks, bud. Thanks, bud. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> well, she heard you, and now she's coming to kill you, so.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you know, that's the important it's, it's like It's like calling your wife Rumi. Thanks, Rumi. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is,
1: that's never occurred to me as something to do. <laughs> and... It might have set off a chain of events that will lead to me sleeping on your couch. Because when I get myself kicked out for doing this too many times, which could be twice, I am going to like make you pay the piper as the person who sort of lit the lit the spark that did the fuse or whatever you however you say that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That old chestnut. Yeah. It's that's that's the chestnut right there. You got it. <laughs> I talk more about chestnuts, but this is a family show. <laughs> oh boy, look how I'm. Oh, <laughs> All right.
0: Well, let's get back on topic, Ethan. What's the topic? Because Michael? we're talking, we're talking about the book uh, "Nobody's Angel" by Thomas McGuane. All right. Uh, we, we've talked about it for an hour already We're going to talk about it for about another hour here um, And last episode I mentioned that I was going to write down The things that uh, we mentioned That we wanted to discuss In this episode And I did that I wrote things down And
1: did you keep it around uh, for the last two
0: weeks? Because that's the impressive thing to I me I did I can write stuff down did. But darned if I can
1: find it an hour later
0: I tattooed it on my flesh, so... Oh, wow. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. I, that's, that's, that's how devoted I am to this podcast, Ethan. That took a turn. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. You, you really um, uh, set the tone for the episode now.
0: Yes, it's serious. It's serious now, and um, there's no turning back, is, is the point. Oh, sure is um, <laughs> I can't help but think uh, you're going gonna...
1: to have sort of a buyer's remorse after this recording session. <laughs> when that tattoo is no longer at all relevant
0: <laughs> and it becomes uh, an historical artifact. Okay, yeah. That right. uh scholars in the future can debate about its meaning. Sure. Um Yes when when my body is exhumed and it the, the flesh is deteriorated so they're illegible anyway. <laughs> that was quite the journey. <laughs> oh wow um yeah i went to a dark place there um so i'm going to take the privilege on this episode and and take my topic first so i sure. i want to relate to uh the last thing that we talked about uh on the previous episode was on page 66 of the book Yikes. where it talks about a bit of the the family history sure um of our protagonist patrick fitzpatrick um and I already talked about the fact that his name uh, is is significant, and I think here we have a little bit more of the significance. I don't. Do we ever get his grandfather's name? Not
1: that I can remember, but we've established my I, uh, memory for names on this podcast. So.
0: Well, and that's something I don't, I don't, I don't know do if that. we ever hear his father's name or his grandfather's name or hear his great grandfather's name. I assume they're um, all Patrick. They well, and that's that's what I'm getting at here, that they are all Patrick. Um <laughs> yeah. in a in a in a very uh very um literary way. So we have um the grandfather who we encounter from time to time and he's kind of a kooky old guy, uh trying to kill all the wasps. Um and sometimes and trying to kill
1: Patrick, I wanna say.
0: Or at least threatening. To uh, it, he threatens him, you know. There's there's yeah. there's certainly some of that and um some of that uh, "spare the rod and spoil the child" mentality for for the grandfather there. Um, the father is dead. He died in a blaze of glory. Um, went out um, in in a a plane crash, and then the great grandfather was a, a womanizer, um, who uh, was also apparently a clergyman. Now this is this is where I. I I've seen hints of of this theme elsewhere. I'm not going to be able to quote everything that that connects to this this theme or this reading of the book entirely that uh is a little bit um more symbolic. But what what I'm seeing brought together in those three forefathers of Patrick that they all come together in him in, in a way that uh is um, connected to King Solomon now King Solomon uh, wrote three books of the Bible of the Old Testament Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon um, and the you take the themes of, of each of those and I think they are represented by Patrick's fathers plural here so the grandpa uh, represents the Proverbs of Solomon, especially as I, I um, mentioned there, spare the rod and spoil the child, is directly from Proverbs. Um, and so being the more present sort of... And, and that's that's a large theme of the book of Proverbs in general is a father's advice to his son. And the grandfather is the one who can provide that for Patrick, whether he heeds it or not, it's there. Um, so the, the wisdom... Um, uh, of, of Solomon, which is a different book, but the wisdom codified by Solomon is there in, uh, the Proverbs is, is emphasized by, by the grandfather, well-intentioned, the of... but a little out there. I'm sorry.
1: Is the wisdom of Solomon, is that an apocryphal considered an apocryphal?
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's from the apocrypha. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, um, but yeah, no, uh, the, so the Proverbs there are, um, The, the grandpa, um, the great grandpa would be the song of Solomon, which, uh, is the, the, um, the one that, uh, that young Jewish boys aren't allowed to read (laughs) because it's considered too explicit for them. Um, but it's, it's, it's about that relationship of, of man and woman. Um, and the, 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 the love that they, they share and stuff. Um, the, uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, imagery in the, the physicality of that love that's, that's in Song of Solomon, but also, uh, it's, a lot of it is termed in religious imagery as well. So have, I think it's very interesting that, uh, McGuane chose to have this supposed, at least, clergyman, uh, be that womanizing type who's running after, uh, the Indian women, um. So there's, there's there's that aspect. Uh, and then the father uh, is Ecclesiastes, um, who is by far the more um, uh, prominent figure in Patrick's psyche, anyway. Um, so this whole question of meaning and meaninglessness, uh, which is there in Ecclesiastes, you get that's where the phrase vanity of vanities, all is vanity, uh, comes from. Um And that's where uh, Solomon points out kind of the meaninglessness of all these these worldly pursuits. Um, Yeah, Ecclesiastes almost sounding like a...
1: On a surface-level reading, can almost sound like an atheistic book in the sense that it's like... It feels very just Mm -hmm. like... Everything is meaningless. Um, Mm -hmm. A good reading of Ecclesiastes... uh, shows more nuance than that but um yeah just ecclesiastes historically like when i was a teenager ecclesiastes was my favorite book of the bible which sure. tells you a lot more about me as a teenager than about ecclesiastes
0: but... <laughs> right right um but so I I think Ecclesiastes does have um a greater prominence in the the themes of the book. Um, sure. in chapter seven when we uh, we have Patrick talking to Mary, um it actually comes from her on page twenty five towards the bottom. Um Patrick asks her, What's the matter with you anyway? And then evidently I can't see life's purpose, she says, which sounds very um Ecclesiastes. That um what's the purpose what's the meaning but then you have this this whole uh running theme for patrick of his sadness for no reason which is uh, a hyphenated Mm -hmm. single term there he's got this sadness for no reason which is very ecclesiastes too
1: yeah it almost feels like a uh you know how the uh, german has all these like In English, they'd be hyphenated, in German, they just run the words together, but it has all these terms that are, like, made up of smaller words. Oh, yeah, like schadenfreude. Yeah, schadenfreude, or, um, sits pinkler, a man who sits down to pee. (laughs) Um, (laughs) there's some other ones that are have, uh, there was, oh, I almost could remember it. Um, no, I'm I'm not going to try it because I'm going to get it wrong, but... There's one that, uh, directly translates to door-closing panic, which is essentially a midlife crisis. Um, mm. the panic one experiences as one gets older and, like, just due to age and the realities of time, less things are open to you and you feel panic about that. Anyway, it just, it, all of that to say that, uh, uh, sadness for no reason feels just like a phrase that is crying out for a German phrase for it yeah
0: um yeah well it's interesting that patrick was stationed in germany too i don't know if there's anything there but yeah that's
1: i hadn't thought of that but there's yeah um but yeah you're right i mean you're right that it's a very ecclesiastes uh phrase
2: um Mm -hmm.
0: right well, so, and, and then I, so you've got that, that Ecclesiastes mentality for Patrick throughout the book yeah. that um, he often tries to... Well, uh, and that's something that Solomon does uh, in in that book is uh, it's, uh, well, I tried this and found out it was meaningless. So I right. tried this, found out it was meaningless. And Which so you've got a little like bit of that in Patrick where he's, yeah. he's trying the workout and that's not fulfilling him. And so he tries this affair with Claire out and that crashes and burns as well yeah no Um, i was i was
1: starting to say it it feels like that could be the pattern of what patrick does in this book um right is the ecclesiastical pattern um it's interesting just back on that bottom of 25 that you just quoted um mary says evidently i can't see life's purpose and a couple lines down patrick says i don't ever think about life's purpose And the narration says, said Patrick, lying in his teeth. Because I want to seem like the smarter person on this podcast, I wanted to just, like, (laughs) destroy your Solomon theory. But, like, it makes... Like, instinctively, I was like, okay, how much is this going to be reaching? Not that reaching is inherently Hmm. bad. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it just seems, as I'm sure you were well aware and did on purpose, it seems like an unlikely claim on the face of it. Um, but the farther into sure. it you get, and especially as you point out, the Ecclesiastes overtones, um, as well as the fact that like, like Patrick's Catholicism is clearly like an mm-hmm. element of his character. It's not a, it's not something that's just included on a whim or for flavor or something. And there's not a lot of it that shows up. Other than some of those key scenes, like the funeral and and stuff, but as far as right. like you know, quoting Bible passages or even parts of the liturgy or anything like that, there's there I think it's there's some sprinklings throughout, but there's not a lot of it that shows up directly mm-hmm. on the surface, which does always make one suspicious that something is going on under the surface, and I think especially with the Ecclesiastes okay. stuff you hit on. Something that's, like, going on right down there in the uh, in the subtext. Um, and I think you at least implicitly answered the follow-up question that I instinctively had when you started on this theory, uh, which is to say, do you feel that Patrick is sort of not um um what's the word i want not pinned to one of these texts uh in the sense that he may be all three of them
0: yeah i think so i think ecclesiastes definitely has the biggest presence um overall um and and there's uh hints of of other characters kind of guiding him along in this ecclesiastes journey mm. um when he's he's writing with uh, catches who's revealed to be um the father of Mary's child mm. um catches himself on page 131 uh says life is more than just work which um sounds like it comes out of ecclesiastes mm-hmm. there too right um uh the it, it, like a paraphrase anyway so like you you've got other other characters kind of guiding him through this ecclesiastes idea too but really wait, when he gets caught up in that um sadness for no reason he is locked into that ecclesiastes and so he tries to to shift his way out of it but really the only way he can do that is through the other two is proverbs or song of solomon um so he either waxes um uh, poetic about the 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 wisdom that's that's out there but he can't really do that except through action like really what's interesting about patrick i think in a lot of ways is that his words fail him so we we mentioned before that um he interrupts the priest in the middle of the the sermon at uh, mary's funeral and says shut up we knew her, you didn't but then he doesn't really have anything to say he can't he i, I don't remember the exact page number for that but um he he falls short he can't actually finish up and then we've got all these different scenes of him getting into fights uh getting arrested and all this stuff and so like he tries to figure out that that wisdom aspect to it but he can't do it through words he has to do it through actions and he tries to apply the stick um the the rod you know with with abandon and no real discretion so he fails at the the proverbs he fails at applying the wisdom And then with Song of Solomon thing, that's, you know, the pursuit of love and this, this pure, clear love. He tries to get to that with Claire. um, But what comes out with Claire is cruelty. That's something that, you know, when they, they first consummate their relationship, the first time they sleep together, uh, she comments on his cruelty um, and really like brings him back down. So every time he tries to branch out, um, he falls right back into this Ecclesiastes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And I will say, just as an aside, because I don't have too much more to say on this than sort of a few theses, um, Mm. but you could do a sort of feminist, uh, at least term paper, if not longer, you know, thesis on this novel. And I suspect that from that perspective... Certainly, Patrick Fitzpatrick does not come out smelling great. Um, no, certainly not. And I suspect that Thomas McGuane also maybe doesn't. Um, I think there's a you know an argument to be made that he's doing some proto-feminist things, or or you know is at least sympathetic there. But I think he falls short in the mm-hmm. way that a lot of uh, mm-hmm. male writers from the 20th century do. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Again, we'd have to get into a much longer discussion that I haven't really thought through terribly well to, like, hammer out all of the nuances there, but I don't know. I mean, if nothing else, the fact that Claire, a clear sex object, is the only real female character in this book is a classic Mm -hmm. male novelist trope that gets pretty tiresome. Um, Well, I want to challenge
0: that. Sure. Real quick. Yeah. What about what about Mary?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess Mary is a... So Claire's not the only female. Not to your overall point. Sure. Just that's a um, point. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that Mary brings up to me, and this may be a point in McGuane's favor, a point against him, or simultaneously both, is that mm-hmm. in Western, like, as in the, the you know, uh, what my um, dear departed grandfather would describe as the gun smoke and horse manure genre, um, that this book certainly <laughs> has heritage of um, both films and literature, the, the Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, feminist criticism has long held that there are only two female characters in that genre, at least you know for 99 percent of its history um and they are the prostitute and the virgin um historically <laughs> what happens is you have a cowboy he rolls into town he or he doesn't or he's already in town whatever but um he's a he's a lone gunman he plays by his own rules he flirts with or even sleeps with the prostitute who is also like the barmaid and or the waitress at the, at the, um, mm-hmm. bar. She's often, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. She's often brown skinned, like Mexican coated or whatever. Sure. Mm, um, and then the only other female character is it, the, the, um, Jungian term is the Madonna virgin complex. So she's the only other female character is right. a virgin. Um, and, She is like usually like the schoolteacher, or the preacher's daughter, or both. um, Right. And she is, you know, pure, and she represents civilization coming into this this anarchic setting. And um, she's the one that the cowboy marries. Like ultimately, she quote unquote tames him. He marries her. You know, they're the thing, and then he has to like sometimes symbolically or sometimes quite literally divorce himself from the prostitute in order to marry the the uh, Madonna or the virgin mm-hmm. or like. um, and the the much cruder, even cruder version of it is that you know the the barmaid is the one that he sleeps with and the teacher is the one that he marries right um, mm-hmm. and so Claire and Mary, in some ways very literally, in some ways very in a very on-the-nose way, fall yep. into these two categories. And you could argue, especially with Mary's character, that McGuane is trying to either problematize them or reverse our expectations of them in some way, but I still think that, like, he falls into a lot of very tiresome stereotypes with the the female characters, both for his heritage in the, like, cowboy western novels as well as for Mm -hmm. essentially white male writers in the last half of the 20th century just writing quote-unquote literature right
0: um right no i I was thinking about that as you were talking that uh, you've got essentially those two um archetypes in those two characters um but the the madonna virgin character of mary literally very mary um Is pregnant out of wedlock, so you've got that exact, like, Mary picture, but uh, problematized already, and then she dies, that's gone, Um, And and then you move on to Claire who is very much a prostitute character, but herself, like, interacts with prostitutes and separates herself from prostitutes. I mean, like, I'm not saying that this passes the Bechdel test because it definitely doesn't. (laughs) No, but Um, those... The reasons
1: you've just named are the reasons that I say maybe McGwen was gesturing at, sort of a... right. ...problematizing of these archetypes. But the way that these two characters function in Patrick's psychology and in his Mm -hmm. personal sort of pantheon are just straight mm-hmm. up and down the old stereotypes. They just have new vaguely feminist window dressing.
0: Sure. At least that's, that's sure. my take that's, on it. That's fair. Um,
1: you know, I, I think I, I think arguments... there's
0: definitely a movement there.
1: Sorry, I was just going to yeah. say, I think other arguments could be made, but I, I, I think that's he just falls back to that. I don't think there's anything more than that.
0: Sure, I, I. And I think, um, without knowing more about Thomas McGwain, I can't argue against you too much. Yeah. Um, well, and sometimes I, I think there would need to be more evidence from like his other books and things. But I think the way it, you know, if I if I try to put the best construction on it for this this book, I think the way he's using those characters is precisely for Patrick's psyche, mm-hmm. and really emphasizing that character that that patrick is i mean he's the protagonist he's a central character but it really is kind of a psychological book for him right and his development and i mean we we haven't even talked about teo Claire's husband um who he deserves some discussion refuses i I mean like there's just his interaction with the three prostitutes and like how he just goes upstairs and sits and does nothing while they just you know have a party downstairs on their own I think that, um, um,
1: part of what we're getting to here is, like, the reason that sort of later uh, works that were trying to be feminist, what they do is they stop centering white men because there's only so far you can go having a white man as your main character and still be a feminist mm-hmm. work. Um, so, sure. like, part of what you're saying is just, like, these characters function as the main character would see them functioning. And that's a fair point. And the point is that is right. not that like Thomas McGuane is a bad person or anything like that. It's just that like, no, this no, is somewhat overdone and tiresome, I think from a certain perspective. Um, sure. I, I, you know, I'm verging on like giving away my rating too early, but like, um, that's all of that was literally just to say that, like, if you do a feminist, a true feminist reading, like a grad school level feminist reading of this book, um, I I mm-hmm. think Wayne doesn't pass muster as a feminist author necessarily. At least. OK, to be fair, no. I'm only and this this touches on your most recent point. I'm only talking about the text of this book. Um, Sometimes right. authors who, right. you know, they'll have like a nascent feminism in one work and then it just doesn't pan out the way that they had hoped, and then they they do something different or or more interesting in another work. So, um, right. This being the only work you or I have read by McGwain, you know, we both don't necessarily uh, uh, know where his other works will go. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just specifically this work, it it just like it falls into a lot of tropes that i think were tired even in 1980
0: um Mm -hmm. but that i guess that was the only real specific point i'm making right well i I do want to talk about teo a little bit too and i want to talk also about the the pros of the text and and i think we can connect the two a little bit because um the so in in terms of of the pros I, I want to like say just right off the bat that it took me a little while to actually get into the rhythm of the mm. book, because it's it's hard. Um, the the it it it's not hard prose necessarily, but the the way the the chapters are structured and the parts are are mm. broken apart, there are like blanks in mm. between. There's there's passage of time that's non-specific, and so what what occurred to me and it might have been about two-thirds of the way through the book that it occurred to me to think of it this way, um, but the way the prose goes along is kind of like limping along in a drunken stupor. <laughs> sure. uh, you get to a point where there's there's a chapter that... Um, uh, the the chapter begins with Patrick coming out of a bar fight, and it just talks about the the black eyes he's got after being hit in the face by the pool cues um and there's almost nothing before it that leads up to that and so it just seems so disjointed that it does feel like you've you've had this um awareness up to that point and then you black Mm. out and then you come back to awareness again and like time has passed and what happened in the midst right. of that. And so it really is a way to kind of get you into that perspective of Patrick, who is kind of a drunk right. um, and stumbles along in that, uh, that attitude, right. um, which, which I, I think is, is only um, for my purposes. I don't know if you'll have more to say about the, the prose itself here and like oh, even the center of the structures much, yeah. and things. i Okay, I'll I'll toss it over to you in a, in sure. a second, but uh, I think that uh, really does does just root it even more in the idea that we are at Patrick's perspective, for this this novel that uh, that we are in his his headspace. Um, yeah, for the entirety of the narrative.
1: Absolutely, and this um, so. what it does is it's essentially a third-person subjective point of view. So, um, yes. It's part of the grand 20th century tradition of rejecting the um, third person omniscient narrator that was very present mm-hmm. in, um, in a, sort of the 19th century. You think about Charles Dickens or Thackeray or even Mark Twain, you know, used it to some extent. This, this idea of a narrator who can tell you things that like the characters themselves don't know. Um, you know, the random example because of who I am as a person, uh, that comes to mind is the end of the scene in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, where, um, uh, Tom has gotten into deep trouble in Sunday school, and the narration has advanced to the point of, like, the highest level of comedy and, like, and interest, and everything else is gonna be boring after this, and the, the last, like few lines of the chapter i'm paraphrasing here of course but it's something to the effect of for the sake of decency we will now draw a curtain over the over the remaining (laughs) um action of the scene or something like that um and uh you know twain is of course using it to comic effect but it's a great example of the like 19th century narrator being someone who just almost was like a puppet master puppeteering the the strings of the story um i mm-hmm. quoted when you quoted the bottom of page 25 i can't remember if that was earlier this episode or last episode um no it was this episode because oh. we were talking about uh, ecclesiastes and um, yeah, that's right the narrator says said patrick lying in his teeth now that almost seems similar to like mm-hmm. the 19th century you know prose but um it's omniscient only in so far as it's telling us the reader something that patrick knew and um right i could be wrong maybe McGoin makes some slip-ups but um as far as i remember you know this this narr- narration it tells us everything about what patrick's thinking or probably not everything but it tells us things that patrick knows and in his his perspective but Essentially nothing else, Um, which, as you were starting to push towards, is the greatest pushback against my feminist reading in the sense that, like, maybe Patrick sees the Madonna, sees his sister as the Madonna and his lover as the whore because, like, that's his own broken or arguably broken psychology, you know, etc. Right,
0: right. And, like, both of those are overturned for him, too. So, like, if you wanted to push yes. back against that, which I don't know is necessarily my purpose, like, that's the way sure. that it's done. But um, there's another element. I, I'm not interested in defending sure. that. Yeah. I,
1: this, these are, like, these are outlines of, like, instead of being outlines of the thesis or the term paper, these are outlines of, like, the... Um, seminar class discussion you would have and and debate you might have in, like, an actual Mm -hmm. grad-level class um, where you took up this novel. And that, you know, could be very interesting. Right. Um, But I just... (coughs) As you were talking about sort of the subjective nature of of the prose, um, I was paging through, and I just found a really good example of... um, or pair of examples, really, of how this prose goes. So, uh, bottom of page 20, we're in chapter 6, we have a break, um, and then, uh, it starts with a new, ch- you know, chapter section. Black coffee in a morning breeze through the paper. Martinsdale Hutterites had recalled 300 contaminated chickens. Cowboys for Christ was having a benefit. Billings fireman captured with three pounds of methamphetamines. Poplar man shot to death in Wolf Point. Bureau of Indian Affairs investigator and tribal police arrested two men as yet unnamed. Half million in felonious cattle defaults. Uh, formerly known as bum deals, thought Patrick. A new treatment center for compulsive gamblers. Lives shattered by slot machines. This goes on, but obviously what the pros is doing here is sort of reporting the things Patrick is perceiving. Uh as he's perusing the morning paper. Um, But you do have to do a decent amount of inferencing that I personally wasn't expecting to have to do in this particular novel. And I will say it's because (laughs) of the cover of the novel makes it look like a Western. The fact that uh, Kevin's Uh dad is reading it in Home Alone, I expected it to be a much more straightforward, like modern Western, like something where a Vietnam vet louis lamore well, louis lamore but maybe for a new generation like a vietnam vet rolls back into town You're right has to confront his childhood bullies they do end up in a shootout like you know a western but it takes place in the mm-hmm. 1970s something like that um so you know to have prose this subjective and this like literary was kind of a shock for me at the beginning and then um we can talk more about that but just skipping forward within the section uh, to page 23, we have not had a new section break, so he and, I think it's his grandpa, yeah, he and his grandfather have had some dialogue mm-hmm. and so forth, um, and a few paragraphs, so we have about one, two, three paragraphs on page 23, and then the fourth paragraph, uh, just those three take up the first quarter of the page, and then this paragraph takes up the rest of the page and most of the next page. and I won't read the whole thing, but um, it starts. When he was away, Patrick's daydreams fell easily back 20 years to summers riding in the hills, spooking games in the spring and down in the blue shadowy draws, swimming in the gold dredge, girls' present, the cold sky-blue submersion of baptism, the best place for the emerging consciousness of women to grow in suitable containment. Even suddenly in a West German dance hall, remembering the flood of Tears of Twelve when he'd killed a spike buck in the same little grove where he and his father always cut their Christmas trees. Um, and it goes on in that vein, but like, just on like a close reading level, um, the first, the original paragraph that I quoted uh, had, um, the, f- the first sentence in it is one line. The second sentence is a line and a half. The mm-hmm. third sentence is less than a line. And the rest are similar to that. In this paragraph, the first sentence is... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six full lines. The second sentence is like four lines. Um, and even beyond that, the rhythms are different. the The rhythm of the newspaper is very uh, um, staccato the rhythm of that second passage is very lyrical like it's it you could break it out mm-hmm. into uh, lines based on the comma breaks and make it like a like a free verse poem almost um, mm-hmm. and like it's it's it is pretty cool and interesting for like both of these prose styles to coexist um, within pages of each other. And I think that all just supports sort of the point you were making before Michael about like the prose itself changes with where Patrick is consciousness wise and where he's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what we're trying to convey. It's a very um, MFA. I don't know if uh, Thomas Wayne, holds an MFA degree or held one at this time, but it's a very MFA thing. Like, it's almost MFA bait. Uh, people who were in an MFA in creative writing <laughs> really like at least this idea. Um, you know, whether or not they like the execution mm-hmm. is a very, is a separate thing. It's very subjective, but um, yeah. So that's, that's what I've got on the
0: project Right. Well, I think something else that it does by by being so based on what's going on with Patrick at any given moment and and changing that way is it makes really every other character inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, I mean it, it comes out with with Claire um, you know with the first time Claire and Patrick sleep together, for instance, like as far as you can tell, she's totally willing. Um, and she's invested in it, but then she comes out on the other side and talks about how cruel he is. And I mean, that's, that's jarring as as a reader, uh, to, to see that, that, that sort of, um, take or, or that sort of, um, response from her because you had no clue that she was opposed beforehand, but then now he's cruel and what's going on? Um, Which is which is a way to reflect back on his character and get a little bit of uh, an outside perspective that this this character of Claire can present a mirror in that way to him. Um, And so, like, you can look at Mary, too. And I I, I wanted to I I thought about asking you earlier on, why did Mary commit suicide? Sure. um, As another question uh open and I, I I don't necessarily wanna uh talk about that right now at this point, but but I think um something that's that's done with the prose surrounding Mary is making her inconsistent too. You know, you get this aspect that oh she's crazy. And so the easy thing to do would be like, oh she's so crazy she killed herself. You know, turn her into an Ophelia a mm-hmm. little bit that way, that she's just crazy and so she just killed herself. Um, which you know is is a disservice to Ophelia itself, but um, it it becomes that sort of simplistic thing. But it's it's not that simplistic um, for for why Mary commits suicide. There there's more to it that if Patrick was paying attention, um, he would have understood more. Um, and it's it's interesting too. We get this almost supernatural element there that he realizes that something's going on. He's totally separate from her and he jumps up from wherever he is and goes running off after her to try to find her. I was I was looking at the page earlier. I don't remember where it is, but it's almost a, a clairvoyance that he has about Mary um, before she dies that he, he gets this premonition of her being in danger. So like he is tuned into her in some respect, but but not totally mm-hmm. perfectly. And Teo also. So, you know, as, as readers coming at it from Patrick's perspective, we see Teo, uh, Claire's husband as this like buffoon. Mm-hmm. He's an idiot. He's, uh, Chad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's, and we hate, hate him, it. you know? Right. Um, but then, especially towards the end, he becomes more mm-hmm. complex. Um, and the the prose won't allow him <clears throat> excuse me the prose won't allow him quite that that complexity but the the overarching narrative and the the repeated encounters with T.O. requires the complexity so what i'm getting at is the the prose is coming from a, an unreliable narrator of sorts Un- unreliable third person um, narrator which in, is
1: kind of fascinating
0: r- right yeah Right, but, um, but it 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 can't be consistent, um, which which I mean is a, a hallmark of an unreliable narrator. But it's it's overtly inconsistent, um, because it so depends on where Patrick is, who's he's who he's encountering, um, and what's going on. So Tio becomes a very interesting character in how much is unseen, mm-hmm. uh in regards to him too. So like with the prose, you know, you've got these, these, you talked about the, the rhythms, the, the changing rhythms of, of the text too. And, uh, um, you know, I mentioned like the blackouts that, that seem to happen. And like, even just within sentences and within the dialogue too, which is um, almost dramatic dialogue. It's unmarked frequently. Um, if it says he said, she said, that's the exception rather than the rule. Um, most often it's just Quotation marks, and then another paragraph with quotation marks, and then another paragraph with quotation marks, and I had to go back and like count the the lines numerous times to figure out who's talking right now. Um, Which uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily a failing in that respect. I think it's intentional intentional. um, because it does just create this um, this this kind of swamp of dialogue that you have to wade through and. Um, if it were being read out loud by actors portraying the different characters you you'd get a more uh, a bigger understanding of it um, at least of who's talking but then also of the emotional state because then uh, if, if you took it from a dramatic standpoint and let the actors interpret the lines, you'd get more mm-hmm. pauses in different places um, you you'd get uh, more of a, a run- on aspect, to some of, of what's going on. I think a lot of the dialogue is very natural. Um, it, it doesn't read very natural because of the prose, because um, it doesn't read like natural narrative prose, but the dialogue, um, I think, reads the way people talk. I, I have a strong suspicion that Thomas McGuane probably speaks out loud, uh, at least the dialogue when he's writing, um, uh, to, to, to get it across, because I think it is very natural that way. Um, and so in terms of talking about Tio in in that respect, um, it, a lot of his dialogue is standout in that way, where if you read it just briefly, he seems like just a tool. But I think there's often more behind it. I think he's often smarter and, and wiser than Patrick is giving him credit for and therefore a first quick read. Uh, as a reader, we are giving him credit for.
1: Um, there may be another.
0: But also with that character of Tio, he's very tragic, um, which which you don't get at the at the start, but he winds up being a lot more tragic uh, than we at first. That may think, also be um, another situ- he, um, also situation. Also, also uh,
1: Patrick is uh, casting Tio in a certain role within the Western in his mind as the antagonist and like what Patrick tends to perceive and therefore the prose tends to report is the antagonistic aspect of him as opposed to sort of the rest of what's going on Mm -hmm. with him
0: right and what's interesting is you know if if this whole thing is a Western in Patrick's mind that he can't quite get to fit perfectly um, is he can't decide what role exactly to mm-hmm. put t o in is he the drunk is he the villain in the black hat um mm-hmm. he can't decide he's both and neither um and he flip flops uh <laughs> over yep. those things so um it's it's something that uh you know in the prose in the narrative and and in patrick's perspective it it waffles around but when we actually hear t o s own words we can see as the reader oh wait a minute there's there's more to mm-hmm. this character than what patrick mm-hmm. sees him as um which is yeah, really fascinating sure. so i don't know if you had more on, on i do specifically
1: because i really desperately want to tell you my uh kevin McAllister's father theory
0: okay that's that's what I want to make sure that we have space for. So I want to hear. Tell me your your theory on Kevin McAllister's right. father, I think please. I
1: want to do this inductively, and I have a couple of sources I want to quote. Oh, great. Um, so you may get there ahead of me <laughs> as far as where I'm going with this, but that's okay. Uh, the first source I want to quote is an essay by Ursula Le Guin, a beloved famous fantasy mm. author. Um who wrote an essay, I think in the 70s, called Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons? And this essay, it's, it's a mm-hmm. relatively short essay, but she's addressing sort of why there's or has been historically a lot of pushback against the um, fantasy genre, fantasy and science fiction specifically, but also just like fiction in general. Um as far as like, oh, that's not important. Oh, like, why are you reading fiction? People who read a lot of fiction sometimes have gotten looked down on historically. Um, So that's the context, but I just want to quote one paragraph from it. Uh, Okay. Le Guin says, In the businessman's value system, if an act does not bring in an immediate tangible profit, it has no justification at all. Thus, the only person who has an excuse to read Tolstoy or Tolkien is the English teacher because he gets paid for it. But our businessman might allow himself to read a bestseller now and then, not because it is a good book, but because it is a bestseller. It is a success. It has made money. Hmm. To the strangely mystical mind of the money changer, this justifies its existence. And by reading it, he may participate a little in the power and mana of its success. If this is not magic, by the way, I don't know what is. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: The second quote I want to quote is from a 2015 uh, edition of the New Statesman magazine. Um, And this is uh, an issue where Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer took were, like, guest editors, so essentially they just got to kind of do what they want for one issue of this magazine. Um, and one of the things that they did was had an interview between Neil Gaiman and Kazuo Ishiguro, um, who is the author mm. of The Remains of the Day, um, as well as The Buried Giant. Um, Buried there's giant. another very famous one that I'm not thinking of right now. Um... But uh, this is an interview between them in the sense that, like, one of them is not interviewing the other. They're sort of interviewing each other. Um, So in a traditional Mm -hmm. interview, you'd have an interviewer with, like, one or two lines and then an interviewee with many more lines than that. This is more like they both have sort of a similar number of lines. And I just want to quote a small passage from that Mm -hmm. interview. Um, Ishiguro finishes a question... Uh, uh. Well, I'll, I'll read the whole question, actually. Um, Ishiguro says, Is there something about books as opposed to films and TV that's inextricably linked with a sense of class? Do you remember educating Rita? Neil Gaiman says, of course. Ishiguro says, What happens there is when a working-class girl wants to, quote, better herself, unquote, she goes to college and studies literature. That's what separates her from her class roots. She can't relate to her family anymore, but she seems to be equipped in some kind of way to move into the middle class world. There's always been that aspect of books. I've been very aware that is part of why some people want to read my work. They think it's prestigious to be seen holding a book by a literary author in their hand. If they are trying to make their way up the class ladder, it's not enough just to make a lot of money. You've also got to be able to converse well about culture, read certain kinds of authors, and go to certain kinds of plays. I'm always very uneasy about that. Uh, Neil Gaiman says, (laughs) so we're actually talking about reading for pleasure as opposed to reading for improvement. The Victorian idea of improving literature, people who want to somehow improve themselves or their mind, you can look at their bookshelves and know who they are, and the people who just read because they want to go into the story. Um... And it goes on from there, uh, uh, you know, and, and problematizes some of the things that they've already said. And, and it's a really fascinating interview. Um, it's like slightly behind a paywall now. I'll provide a link, but, um, it's one of those things where you get a couple of free articles mm. and then you have to pay. But, um, anyway, <clears throat> uh, As soon as, when I got about halfway through this book, and I of course had in mind your earlier question, or your earlier idea that Kevin McAllister's dad was writing this, these were the two essays and specific passages that popped into my mind. And specifically, if you think about Kevin McAllister's dad, he lives in New York City, I forget if we get anything about what his actual business is, but like, Given where they live in New York and the type of circles that they run in, and the fact that they're going on like a destination Christmas vacation, like you know, they're like yuppies in the truest sense of the
0: word, right? Youngish. Oh, certainly. Youngish yes. and it's, it's, upwardly mobile. It's, it's it's remarked on numerous times how how wealthy their their neighborhood and their houses right. and. But I at least yeah. And granted, so, I mean,
1: you've watched Home Alone much more recently than I have, but I at least get the sense, historically speaking, that like, yeah, they're 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 wealthy, but they're like new rich, and um, you mm-hmm. know, especially in New York City, that's always there's always been this like new rich versus old rich uh, uh, distinction.
0: Sure. Well, they they don't live in New York okay. City. Uh, I don't forget exact. I don't remember exactly where they are, but Home Alone Two takes place okay, in New York. Do you remember where they live in
1: New York? In that's where he gets in lost in there. Home Alone One. But... Are they in like New Jersey uh,
0: or something? Let's see Chicago.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it kind of doesn't matter, even though I just kind of implied that it matters a lot. But um, you know, the <laughs> point is that these are clearly sort of new rich folks, and whether or not they are like. Kevin's dad is is very much like trying to be a certain type of person that he seems not to be naturally. And mm-hmm. it feels to me like when Home Alone takes place, like Thomas McGuane's novels might be the exact novels that people in Chicago or in certain parts of New York, for that matter, but especially in Chicago, that like, Everyone at the holiday party will have read Nobody's Angel. So when I, you Get know, when it. I first, um, uh, when it, again about my expectations when it was first introduced, what I assumed was this was a vacation book, this was a beach read, this was a western, right. That Kevin's dad that's, is reading. That's exactly what I assumed. Sure, yeah, is you know, then he's reading <laughs> this as just like a, a chill out, you know. Big Mac of a book. Um, Not something to improve him, just something to entertain him because he's on vacation. Um, What I've modified my opinion to is exactly what Ishiguro was talking about as far as, um, uh, well, Ishiguro and Gaiman talking about as far as like improving literature or literature that makes you look a certain way or gives you a certain social credibility or what Ursula Le Guin much more simply described as manna right the sort of book Mm -hmm. that you read and have about you not so much for enjoyment as for credit of various kinds whether that's spiritual Mm -hmm. in some some vague way or cultural or um you know whatever whatever other adjective you want to put on it that's my analysis of why Kevin's dad has this particular book in his hand
2: Mm mm-hmm
0: I like that yeah because i i was wondering that myself because honestly i had the exact same thought that this was just gonna be louis lamor adjacent yeah um <clears throat> this is gonna be a western we were gonna have the shootouts it was gonna be a lot of candy um and i you know for for the podcast's sake i was expecting us to to be able to to talk about the the western genre a little mm. bit and um and what the the value of a candy book like that was which you know we kind of are a little bit and to be um, fair but, i think even the like back cover of this book kind of
1: oh my gosh it's it that way yes I, I, yeah let <laughs> us both take up
0: our detached back covers that we have the detached back cover that we have that's separated from the text of the book um in more ways than one <laughs> um Yes. Uh, so in Thomas McGuane's Montana, you could almost laugh, <laughs> <laughs> which starting sets
1: very wrong expectations right from the get go.
0: Very wrong. Very wrong. Uh, there's there's a lot wrong with this this back cover. The Indians are nowhere to be seen. Not wrong. true. There for one actual, thing. There's very at least one true. prominent Indian character in this book. Yep. 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 Um, and in the old west a variety of new lifestylers are mingling with the locals okay that's true but patrick fitzpatrick army tank captain and whiskey addict isn't laughing when he returns home and takes stock his family is missing divorced dead or trying out for the movies the ranch is in pieces okay Okay. so like and this
1: of course is us doing the uh reader's guide but with the back cover but for the back cover um but like all of that is technically true, but the everything from the like way the sentences, the very long sentence is structured with both dashes and colons um and semicolon, um as well as the first sentence about you could almost laugh, like it sets it up to be a much more comical like idea than the no- the novel's Ecclesiastes. Centric undertones actually are. Hmm. Uh,
0: please Very continue much if so. you want
1: to. If you want to.
0: Very much so. Well, I, I I wanted to to think about this too. That like in terms of the plot of the book, he doesn't just return home. At the start of the, he's he's home. He's been mm-hmm. there.
1: That's fair. Yeah.
0: For at least a little while. Yeah. So, the the expectations are are completely incorrect from the back Yeah, I mean we don't Um,
1: necessarily need to read the rest of it unless you want to but like no,
0: I I don't know if we necessarily need to but like also the ranches and pieces like that might be true but it's definitely not anything to do with the plot yeah again it like (laughs) it's technically true but it sets up an expectation of what type of
1: story this is going to be that isn't paid off at all no no. And, like, because these, um, um, you know, blurbs like this are often written by publicists rather than the authors themselves,
0: I this is not right. McGuane's
1: fault, I would say.
0: No. But. No, I, I won't give the credit to, to McGuane on on any of that. Um, to be fair to whoever did write it, like, I don't know exactly what I would write for a back cover blurb. Especially about when this you're book. under pressure to. Um, you
1: know, sell some sizzle yeah. here rather than just say, well, it's real depressing and we talk about Ecclesiastes a lot.
0: Which I think right. would be like the and this... Ethan pitch. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um so, something along those lines anywhere. A- anyway. Um yeah, so I mean it I think it's it, it's close enough to, to being able to at least sell the book. Right. Um that's it's something. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Ethan, uh, as we wind down here, do you have any more comments that you want to uh, shoehorn in?
1: No, nah, I got my uh, Kevin McAllister's dad theory out there, and that's really I and the I only greatly appreciate that.
0: I think you are on the money with it as well, so um, I love it um well let's let's uh talk about our ratings here Uh, we don't have uh anyone to punish nobody broke any rules so let's let's talk about the the ratings um ethan let's rate the book what what's your rating for nobody's angel by thomas mcgwayne on a scale of buy borrow to forget about it
1: i am gonna say forget about it um i don't think anyone particularly needs to read this book other than maybe the academics that we've sort of referenced as ghosts flitting around the the edges of this discussion <laughs> um who might like anyone who you know would pick up this book and was interested in like montana based literature 1970s and 80s literature anyone doing work in that kind of um area like maybe should read this book and mine it for what it's worth and maybe one of those people can tell me why i'm wrong and this is an essential work that should be studied and read and reread what i got out of it was that like mcwayne isn't doing anything that like writers both of his time and before and after him weren't also doing better like i didn't feel like this was an essential book at all and the only other reason I'd recommend it, recommend something like that is if I thought it was fun, and I didn't think it was that fun. So, um,
0: yeah, I'm going to just say, uh, forget about it. I'm probably 90% with you on this. Um like I, I don't know exactly what I expected. I expected a lot. I, I definitely expected more of the western. Uh, out yeah, of I this, was trying this thing, which I was trying not to rate it like
1: based on my expectations of it and just based on the book itself. Yeah,
0: but right, that, that that's that's fair. Um, I, I, you know, the the fun factor. I, I think if I were to read through it again, and I don't know if I will, if I were to read through it again, I might get more enjoy enjoyment out of it. But if it's a book that requires you to read it twice to get a, a lot more enjoyment out of it, then that's not necessarily a great book. Like if it's a book that you get a lot of enjoyment out of the first read and then even more out of the second read, then that's a buy book. But if it's a book that you get very little enjoyment out of the first one and then more out of the second one, then that's maybe a borrow. Um, but, you know, for a lot of the reasons that we've already discussed, it, it I, I like what you said. It's not an essential book. Yeah, I, I did enjoy my read. And and there were especially with the prose, you know, there were a lot of points at which I stopped and I was like, oh, my gosh, he just said that. And mm-hmm. that's 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 wonderful. And I love the way he put that Um So I I think there is certainly an expertise in the craft that Thomas McGuane has. Mm. Um, So I, I, I'm not sorry to have read it. Mm. Um, I, and, and I want to echo what you said too, that if there's someone who is more interested in the subject of Thomas McGuane or his era or area and, and, and so forth, Mm. um, then maybe it's a borrow for them. But overall, yeah, it, it's not essential. I, I don't see myself ever re- recommending this book to anyone unless I find out they have that specific niche interest. Um, So in those terms, it's a forget about it.
1: Yeah, I agree um, with you on the idea that like I'm not sorry to have read it. I was entertained during it, but yeah, I just, mm-hmm. like you said, I I don't see myself recommending it. Weirdly, I could see myself like picking up another Thomas McGuane book and reading yeah. the first 100 pages or so and if those hooked mm-hmm. me maybe reading it and and feeling better about it depending but um like right. I was borderline tempted to say borrow it and do that
0: with this one but I yeah I'm comfortable mm. with my forget about it Fair fair Well how would you rate the pairing Ethan between Nobody's Angel and Shield Egg, Speyside 12-year scotch from uh, Perfect Match, Pretty Good Match, uh, Slight Mismatch, and Total Mismatch.
1: I'm interested in what you think about this, but I'm going to rate it a Total Mismatch, specifically because Hmm. I feel like, and not to get into the rating of the scotch uh, that we're a couple episodes out from, but like, I feel like this is a very nice scotch. Like, this is a scotch that if you if it were a person, you'd describe it as a sweetheart. And that's, like, not this novel. We've had much meaner scotches on this podcast, including some that I liked quite a bit. I, I mean, I think I probably tend to like a meaner scotch in some ways, especially if you take my, you know, uh, desire for smokiness into account. And... I feel like one of those would have been a much better match for this particular book. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's to say nothing of how I like the Scotch on its own merits. But
0: for this book, yeah, total match. I, I I hate to exactly echo you again, <laughs> Ethan. Sorry. Dan. Um, but I right like I no it, it does. It, I I. I I don't want to get into the, the Scotch discussion itself either, but uh, I think this book, for a Scotch to pair with it, does demand something that is meaner, something that is um, harsher, something yeah. that that is is more at least upfront um gritty and dark and dangerous and then maybe behind it has some more some more of that sweetness so you know uh if if it had this on what what this scotch does up front if it had that at the back and then something smokier and harder at the front that's Mm -hmm. what this one Mm -hmm. one needs perhaps Mm -hmm. um to to have a better better match but no i think it's um a, a total mismatch. I, I, I don't say total mismatch to, a, as though, you know, I, I think it, it's jarring um, in terms of its mismatch, but it it doesn't it doesn't quite fit. No, yeah. it's, it's not exactly right. So, um, well, Ethan, what are we going to be discussing next time?
1: Uh, next time, I believe we are talking about uh, Where the Light Fell by Philip Yancey.
0: Yes. Um, so for f- that gentle listener, I was going to say it's the mm-hmm. first memoir
1: that we've had on this podcast, I believe.
0: That's that's true. That's true. You have the 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 distinction of bringing us our first memoir. Um so for that gentle listener, uh if you'd like to read along, please uh join us in the contact section of org. Uh, go to the, the contact section there and put Scotch Talk in the subject line and get in touch with us and tell us what you think. Uh, we want to know uh, how how you like it. And otherwise, just, uh, you know, go to rate the podcast as well, and you can tell us what you think about uh, any of our episodes, any of the books we've read. Uh, and if you add to that rating, uh, you know, five stars, I think would be uh, an acceptable number to to put on all that. So we'd, we'd, we'd appreciate that. It's the only actual uh, number uh, that they let you do.
1: Any of the other ones, it's it's right. You know, you get in trouble.
0: It just gets. Don't ask how you get in trouble. You'd you'd, you'd be in trouble for that. Yeah, that's right. Um, But with that, until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if you try to break out of all these stereotypes, but fall back into them anyway. I mean, we will. (laughs) We will. We'll be very sad about it.